All right, if you will, take out your Bibles with me, or if you do not have your own copy of Scripture, I'd encourage you to take out the blue Bible on the pew in front of you. Let's go to the Old Testament book of Micah once again. Micah chapter 4 today, starting in verse 6. If you're not familiar with the way a Bible is laid out on the blue Bibles in the pews, it's on page 925. That's where our text will begin. Micah chapter 4, starting in verse 6. As we come to God's Word this morning... Now, as I was growing up, I I bet you did this too, I always paid attention to other people's parents, all my friends. Anytime I saw their parents and the way they interacted with their parents, I was always paying attention to, to their parents, and we were always, all of us who were friends, we were always paying attention to one another's parents, probably because we all saw differences here and there between the way our home was and the way it was in someone else's home. And so, for example, had two parents, some only had one. Some of my friends lived in a house that was kept uh, super duper clean and tidy, and some not so much. Some had parents who were Christians, others it was pretty clear their parents were not. But I particularly always noticed my friends' as dads. I was always noticing their dads. I can remember some guys who were just afraid of their dad all the time. They had a dad that was that kind of guy. He was just the, the dad of um, discipline and, and strength and fear and no emotion, and that was their dad. Don't cross him. Don't do anything to set him off. If he's in a bad mood, watch out. And then I can remember other guys whose dads would essentially let them do anything they wanted to. And at first, we all thought that was cool. And then some of us were jealous, but it didn't take us long before we realized it wasn't such a good thing, that those guys really didn't have a good father. But those of us who had good dads can always be thankful that we experienced both their discipline on the one hand and their affection on the other. Those of us who had good dads, we can be thankful for both of those things, for experiencing discipline and affection. One without the other makes for a pretty poor parent, but both together create a very healthy environment for shaping a young person into who they need to be. Well, today we're going to see both of those sides of God, both the sides of God, God's discipline and God's love and affection for his people. Let me show you what I mean in our text We're going to read Micah chapter 4, starting in verse 6 to the end of the chapter. This is God's inerrant, inspired word through the prophet Micah. It says, In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off, a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished, that pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon, there... You shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. 
Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled, and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand His plan. That He has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hoofs bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples, and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Now I want you to notice that right here in the midst of Micah chapter 4, God is giving his people words of hope even as he is telling them, you are about to be disciplined. He's telling his people through the book of Micah, what the entire book is really about, is God telling the people of Israel, because of your sin, you are about to be disciplined. Verse 10 there says, you shall go to Babylon. That was God's punishment to the Israelites. He warned them about this all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy. Let's think about our Bible timeline for a second here. Before the Israelites ever came into the promised land, before they ever were a a prominent nation with a king and a temple, they were wanderers in the wilderness. Remember after the, the, the slavery in Egypt, they were wanderers in the wilderness. But then they finally come to the promised land. They're about to enter it. And Moses gives them one final word. And that's the book of Deuteronomy, really. Moses' final word to the people before they go into the promised land. And God is speaking through Moses, essentially. God says to the people, when you go into this promised land that I'm going to give you, if you keep my commandments, if you abide in me, if you remain with me, if you honor me and only worship me, then the land will produce plentiful for you. It will go well with you. Your lives will be wonderful. Your your offspring will be great. But if you abandon me, if you follow after other gods, if you despise my commandments and break my commandments and break this covenant that I am making with you, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring in another pagan nation to drive you out of that promised land. That's exactly what happened. The people turned away from God slowly but surely. Their arrogance brought about by their, uh, their wealth and prosperity. And then eventually God comes down and says, that is enough, I'm bringing in the nation of Babylon. And Babylon will come in at the point that we're at in the book of Micah. Babylon has not come in yet, but they will. Nebuchadnezzar, if you know King Nebuchadnezzar from the book of Daniel, they'll come in and they'll, they'll wipe it out. They'll destroy Jerusalem. They'll destroy the temple, the place where God's presence was. They destroy it all. And they cart the Israelites off as slaves to a foreign nation to live in a foreign land under a foreign pagan king with traditions and language that is not their own. That's God's punishment. We've seen in the book of Micah already, throughout these sermons that we've done through this book, we've seen the Israelites' sin. Their sins were idolatry, oppression of the weak and the powerless. They refused to heed God's words, and they were using God for their own selfish gain. And so God is about to discipline them. But the Lord disciplines those that He loves. The Lord disciplines those that He loves. What we see here even amidst God telling them they're about to go to Babylon, is God is giving them words of hope, and it shows us that God is disciplining them for their own good. He's disciplining those people whom He loves. Listen to what it says in Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 7. It says, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline... 
in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, that we may share in His holiness." For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The Lord disciplines us for our good. It says in that text, that we may share in His holiness, right? He disciplines us so that it may yield a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Brothers and sisters, we've got to have a category in our heads for this, that God disciplines us. Those he loves. Because if we don't, when we experience suffering, when we experience trial, we'll have a crisis moment of our faith. We'll we'll think that God is abandoning us when the exact opposite is true. Sometimes the Lord is simply spanking us. It's just true. That happens sometimes. The Lord does this. Sometimes we experience sufferings because of other people's sin against us. Sometimes we experience suffering because of our sin. Many times the Lord allows us to go through this so that we can grow. But there are times, brothers and sisters, where the Lord is simply spanking us. And it is our our duty to endure it humbly, faithfully, under the hand of God. But we have to have a category for this. Because so many Christians today do not have a category for this in their theology, and their understanding of who God is. And so when suffering comes, they have a crisis moment in their faith. Where is God? God has abandoned me. Brothers and sisters, suffering is no indication that God has abandoned you. In fact, most of the time, suffering as a Christian is the very thing that shows us that He loves us, that He is drawing near, that He is working on us for our own good, that He is forming our character and our hearts and our lives. When we go through suffering, we've got to have these categories, and it's important for us to have them now, before we go through the suffering. Right? Some of us in here are going through suffering right now. We know this. But many of us in here are not. Right? Many of us in here are just simply not in a season of life right now where we're suffering. But it's so important that you get this now when you're not suffering, because when the suffering happens then our our instincts just come up. Our theological instincts, so to speak, they just come right to the surface. You don't have time to sit there and be logical when the suffering hits. your, Your theological instincts come up. And so how have you trained, how have you trained your, your mind and your heart to know God and to know His ways for those times when suffering comes? What will our theological instincts be when that suffering hits? We've got to understand that God loves us. And suffering is not a sign that He is done with us. In fact, it's a sure sign that He is committed to us and to our eternal good. All of this gives us hope. It gives us hope. These words right here in Micah 4 give us hope. Specifically, it gives those of us who have been unfaithful and those of us who have been disobedient at times to God, it gives us hope. The unfaithful and the disobedient find hope in these words because we know our own sin this morning. We know our own sin. That person sitting next to you, they might know a little bit about your sin, but you know the depths. 
you, you know the dark corners of your heart that no one else can see. We know our own sin. We know our own track record. And we know that when we talk about the unfaithful and the disobedient in church, we're not just talking about people out there. We're talking about us. We're talking about me, right? If, if you've got this category in your head that every time you hear about the unfaithful and the disobedient, it's somebody else, you need a spiritual awakening this morning. Because we know the depths of our own hearts. We're talking about ourselves here. And if God writes off those who are disobedient and unfaithful, if He punishes them and then leaves them, well, then we don't have any hope at all. But that's not what we see here. That's not what we see. Look at verse 9 and 10. In verses 9 and 10, God says, Why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor? And then he goes on at the end of verse 10 to say, The Lord will redeem you from Babylon. The Lord will redeem you from your hand of your enemies. He's saying to his people, I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. You're going to go to Babylon. It's going to happen. Your punishment is coming. And you will have to endure it. But I will not leave you. I will not abandon you. It might seem like that, but I won't. In fact, verses 11 and 12 show us that to the world it seemed like that. To the world it seemed like God was abandoning his people. Look at verse 11. Verse 11, God says, Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled, and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. Right? These, are, these are people that are uh, arrogantly showing off and saying, God has abandoned you. God has abandoned you. God says it seems like to the other nations that they have been forsaken. The Israelites have been forsaken by God because they're saying things like, where's your big strong God now? He's abandoned you. He can't help you. We're too strong and you're too weak. But look at what verse 12 says. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them, the sheep of the threshing floor. See, they, they didn't understand that God's plan was to use those wicked nations like Babylon to discipline his people. And then, when it was all over, once it was complete, he would deliver his people, and then he would crush those nations. It's the plan of the Lord. But they didn't understand that. All they saw was the Israelites who were once strong and once mighty, now weak and helpless. It looks like their Lord has abandoned them. Listen to what God says in Isaiah chapter 55, starting in verse 8. He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. When it looks like from the outside that the Lord has abandoned His people, that is exactly when He is there right next to them. When it may look like from the outside that the Lord has abandoned you, remember, suffering is no evidence that the Lord is absent. In fact, it is often a very strong evidence that He is committed to you, that He is working on you. Remember Hebrews 12 those fathers that did not discipline them, their sons, those fathers that did not discipline their children, those are the, the fathers who don't love their kids, right? The father who loves us, he disciplines us for our own good. 
to shape our character, to correct us, to bring us back to Himself. The enemies of the Lord's people thought the Lord had abandoned them, but it was the exact opposite. And this is exactly what happened with Jesus. It's exactly what happened with Jesus. Remember, in Jesus' lowest moment, they put a crown of thorns on his head. They put a purple robe around him. They mocked him. They put a sign that sarcastically read, King of the Jews, above him. They crucified him on the cross, and then they yelled at him and reviled him and said things like, He saved others. Let's see if he can actually save himself. They said things like, let him call out to his God. Let's see if God comes to save him now. And all the while, verse 12 was true. They did not know the thoughts of the Lord. They did not understand the Lord's plan. That in the moment where it seemed like Jesus was defeated, he was actually winning the greatest victory of all time. In the moment where it seemed like Jesus was abandoned, and in a sense... In a sense, he was. God was actually there glorifying himself and winning salvation for his own people by doing the hardest thing imaginable that a father could do to a son. To pour his own wrath out on his own son. To punish and torture his own son on the cross. And people thought it meant defeat. People thought it meant that Jesus was done. But Jesus, in the end, cried, It is finished, gave up his spirit. And then for three days, the world had no idea. But we know how the story ends. This, this whole thing brings us to, I think, what is the heart of the gospel. We, we kind of started up at the top here. If you think about this sermon as a, a, an onion with layers, so to speak, We started on the outside, we peel away a layer here and a layer there, and we're kind of going toward the center, because at the center of the gospel is the idea that we see here in Micah chapter 4, verses 6 through 13, that even in the midst of God's own discipline, God himself will save his people from his own punishments. You see, God saves us, but he saves us from God. God saves us, but he saves us from himself. Look at verse 6. In verse 6, it says, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away. Who drove them away? The Lord did. And it says at the end of verse 6, and those whom I have afflicted. This is God speaking. And then verse 10, it says, the Lord will redeem you. After he sends them off to Babylon, it is the Lord that's going to redeem them. God is calling his people here. To bear his punishment with humility and submission, which is what we have to do when the Lord disciplines us. He's calling his people to bear his punishment with humility and submission and to wait on his deliverance. We trust in the Lord. That's not just a, a pet phrase that we say to make each other feel better. We trust in the Lord. We trust in God even when we are receiving his discipline. And we continue to trust in God to bring us out of his own discipline when the time comes. We trust in him. We wait on him. We remain in him even as we go through his own discipline. 
We see this throughout the Old Testament all the time. God will bring a punishment or a judgment on his people, and then they must trust in him and plead with him to bring them out of it, right? This happens all the time in the Old Testament. For instance, in Numbers 21, after the people were grumbling and complaining against the Lord, he sent poisonous snakes among them to bite them, and some of the people died. But even as the snakes were among them and as the bites were happening, God tells Moses, I want you to make a snake out of bronze, metal. I want you to hold it up, and then any one of the people who looks at that snake will live. They will be healed. It was, a, it was a foreshadowing of Jesus being lifted up on the cross, and anyone who looks to Christ can be saved. But the bronze snake, right? The people were punished by God, and then they had to be saved by God. God saving them from God. Listen to Hosea chapter 6, verse 1, where Hosea says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us that He may heal us. He has struck us down, and He will bind us up. You see, you see how it's centered on God the whole way? It's Him the whole way. Listen to Psalm chapter 30, verse 5. For His anger is but for a moment, and His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. In other words, wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord to deliver you from His own discipline. We must trust in God to bring us through and out of his own punishments, his own discipline. We must trust in God to save us from God. Ultimately, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. God saves us from God. Because think about it. When we say we need to be saved, right? What do we need to be saved from? Ultimately, what do we need to be saved from? R.C. Sproul tells a story that when he was a younger man and he was starting to study the Bible and get serious about teaching the Bible, someone came up and asked him that very question one time. It's a very simple question, but he froze because he couldn't answer it. The person said, what do I need to be saved from? And he couldn't answer it. And he vowed right then and there that he was never going to be in a situation where he couldn't answer that question again. But as he came to study scripture, what he realized was what we need to be saved from is God's own wrath. That's what we need to be saved from. Yes, we need to be saved from our sin. We need to be saved from Satan. But ultimately, the main problem that we need to fix is sin separates us from God and sin brings about condemnation. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is spiritual death, separation from God, punishment by God himself. On the cross, Jesus was taking what we deserved. He was in our place, substituted for us, taking what we deserved. And what was that? It was the wrath of God. Now, don't get this wrong. It is not as though God is somehow a a bad guy and a good guy at the same time, right? And so the the bad guy God is, is trying to punish us, but the good guy God is trying to save us from the bad guy God. That's not what's going on. God is a God of truth, a God of justice, a God of holiness, A God of righteousness. A God who lays down standards that must be obeyed and punishments that must come if those standards are not obeyed. How will we escape such a judgment? How will we escape if we know the depths of our own hearts? We know how sinful we are. We know that we have rebelled. We know that we have not lived up to His standard. 
There's only two options. Either I can suffer God's wrath myself in eternity in hell. Or I can let Jesus take my place and have him suffer the wrath of God for me. What do we need to be saved from? We need to be saved from God's wrath. Who provides the solution? Who is the one who provides the path for us to be saved? Who is the one who provides the substitute sacrifice? It's God. It's God all the way. It's God from first to last. The gospel is God's glory at the cross in God saving us from God. He saves us from His own wrath by providing for us the sacrifice. God so loved the world that He gave us His only Son. That verse is a lot more than just, here's a nice present. He sent Jesus to the cross. He punished His own Son on the cross in our place. God saves us from God. It's the heart of the gospel. And it's the glory of God and the glory of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, I want to leave you with verse 7. The end of verse 7, actually. At the end of verse 7, it says, And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. God is saying to the Israelites, I'm going to bring you through this. Remember, they're receiving this word from the Lord before His punishment comes. Right? He's giving them hope that they need to hold on to while they experience his punishment because the punishment hasn't come yet. They're not going to Babylon just yet. It's about to happen. Micah's prophesying right before that happened. And God is saying, I'm going to bring you through this. And on the other side, I will keep you under the shelter of my wings from this time forth and forevermore. It reminds us of that great promise in Revelation chapter 21, verse 3 where John writes, the Apostle John, having received that great vision that the book of Revelation is all about, John writes, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Don't miss that phrase. That's a phrase that you, excuse me, that you will see over and over again throughout the Bible. If you read through your Bible, you will see this phrase come up in a number of, of varying ways with, with different words here or there, but it's always the same kind of phrase. They're at the end of chapter 21, verse 3. That they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. That's an important phrase in the Bible. It's a phrase that we see in Leviticus as God is telling the people how they can have Him dwell in their midst without destroying them. It's a phrase that we see in Jeremiah and Ezekiel as they prophesied of the new covenant. They were prophesying of what we're experiencing now. And they used that, that phrase, that they will be His people and God Himself will be their God. And we see that phrase in places like Zechariah and here in Micah, where God speaks to His people of how it will be in eternity he is our God, and we are His people. Let that sink in. Those words sound simple, but they are profound. He is our God, and we are His people. And one day, He will dwell with us as our God, and we will dwell with Him as His people. The Lord will reign over us both now and forevermore. 
He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. We are his people. And he is our God. Earlier, I quoted to you from Isaiah 55, where the Lord says, My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. But listen to what Isaiah 55 says just a couple of verses before that. Isaiah 55, verse 6. This is God's plea to each one of you this morning. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. You see what he's saying there? God is saying, you think my thoughts, you think my ways would be to just write you off. You think my ways would be to not forgive you. You think my ways would be to punish you and leave you. But the Lord will have compassion, it says, on the one who returns to him. The Lord will abundantly pardon. He does not do what we think he would do. He does not do what we would do if we were in his situation. He's not like us. He will give grace. He will give forgiveness to the one who turns to him in repentance and faith forsaking their sin, confessing Jesus as Lord, you can have forgiveness of your sins today. You can have forgiveness of your sins today. God is ready and willing to abundantly pardon our sins. God is ready and willing to love you and to adopt you into His family if you would but come to Him in humble repentance. Will you come to Him today? Right now we're going to spend a few moments in silent prayer. As we do this each week, we offer it as an opportunity for you to respond to the Lord. Respond to the word that he has put on your heart. The Lord's word is a weighty thing. The Lord's word is uh, something that Hebrews tells us cuts to our heart. And so as it does, we want to offer an opportunity for all of us to respond to what God just did to our hearts and what God just put into our hearts. As we each respond in private prayer, we'll come back after a few moments of that. We'll have a time where we can respond publicly, those who need to do so, to God's Word. So let's pray for a few moments together.